Chapter 19 of Aunt Hannah and Martha and John by Pansy and Mrs. C.M. Livingston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter 19 Intricacies. A curious and interesting study, as well as a very profitable one, could we be persuaded to take the time to consider it, would be what large results are often produced from small causes. As trivial things in their way, at least from their starting points, as the dish of mush and milk and the green silk bonnet made out of an old-fashioned mutton-leg sleeve, were contributing to make life a perplexity to Mr. Remington and his wife. Industriously they toiled at the problem how to make a wealthy, fashionable church, which felt itself in need of nothing, take vigorous hold of the Lord's work in the world, with eyes single to his glory, and with ears attent for the sound of his coming. They expected difficulties, these two. They were no visionary workers. They remembered that the Lord himself walked the earth very much alone, misunderstood, spoken against, sneered at by his enemies, held under restraint by his friends. They remembered that the servant is not above his Lord. They were prepared to move slowly, cautiously, to be as wise as serpents, and they meant certainly to try and be as harmless as doves. Yet as the weeks passed, and the months, there was in the air a nameless something which perplexed and disheartened them. It was not criticism so much as espionage which they felt, a vague feeling of being watched and commented upon, and distrusted almost, in localities where they had hoped for and looked for hearty cooperation, so far, at least, as the visible prosperity of the church was concerned. They were perplexed, and they were in a degree anxious, Yet they tried bravely to keep their burdens to themselves. Very early in their city experience it became apparent to Mrs. Remington that her husband was to be overtaxed, that he took life too hard to be a physical success in a city, that he shouldered the whole heart-wearing round of the burdens which belonged to the poor and the suffering and the sinful, that he let himself be weighted down by a thousand bitternesses which he could neither lift nor control. The young wife wise beyond her years in some respects, looked on anxiously, felt certain that John would have to drop this and let up on that before many months, yet resolved that she would not distress him with spoken forebodings about anything, nor dish up for him any of the pettiness which fell to her share. So she treasured as bits of jewels all kind and appreciative words, and even grew skillful in translating kindly glances and warm hand-pressures with which to rest the minister's heart when they met at the breakfast-table, which was now almost their only uninterrupted bit of leisure time together. Their home life was constantly broken in upon by engagements elsewhere, not often by guests at home, save the informal ones, the brother minister from an outlying parish who dropped in just at dinner-time because there was a lecture or a debate, or something of interest in town that evening, or the agent who represented some church or library or association in financial distress, Interruptions of this kind were so numerous as at times to almost bewilder Mrs. Remington and lead her to wonder whether city pastors were really expected to keep a hotel for the benefit of their brethren in the suburbs and the innumerable company who represented some cause. Nothing of this sort troubled John. He was social by nature and accustomed to the hearty hospitality of the country. His invitations to come in and take dinner with us and be ready for the evening in town were as free and genial as the most timid could desire, and led many a perplexed brother in the work to say, What a warm-hearted, cordial way Brother Remington has! It does me good to go to his house. 
As for Mattie, she held the family purse and paid the bills, and the extra expense which these informal guests entailed upon them sometimes filled her prudent heart with dismay. For this reason, among others, there were not often formally invited guests at her table. It appalled her to think that she actually seemed not to be able to afford to have company. What would her mother or Aunt Hannah think of that? The other reason, which she also kept in the background as much as possible, was connected with the troublesome thought that she had neither the appointments nor the trained servants to enable her to furnish for her guests such entertainment as was constantly offered to them in the elegant houses connected with their church. When would they ever have? Were they not spending money in an alarming manner every day? Were they not also constantly running behind? What would be the end of it all, and how could they help it? All these puzzles she kept resolutely to herself. She could foresee that the time would come when they must be shared, but until such time as she should have something to offer in the way of relief, she would be silent. It must be that I shall learn, after a little, how to manage so as to have the expenditures less, said the poor overburdened woman, or it may be that I can, by and by, get along without a second girl. If Cook would only answer the bell and do a few other things besides the ones for which she seems to think she was exclusively engaged. It does seem as though two people ought to be able to get along with one servant. If there were not so many calls to make and receive, or if John had time for the marketing, which he hasn't. Day after day the problem came and stood before her, and waited with a sort of sullen triumph, along with other problems, to be solved. And day after day she did her best, and gained upon it not one cent, and pushed it resolutely aside for one night more, and held her peace. Aunt Hannah, wise-eyed though she was, had not discovered that financial burdens were helping to pale the cheek of her favorite. She had lived on a farm all her life. She did not know that the morsel of butter and eggs and milk and cream, which so small a family as John's could consume, needed to be counted at all. His salary seemed large to her, very large. It did not once occur to her that they could be in other than really affluent circumstances. It was she who had installed the second girl. Of course you must have someone to answer the bell, and run of errands, and do a dozen little things for Martha, she had said to John, with the familiarity of one accustomed to advising him. The idea that that child can trot up and down those long flights of stairs twenty times in a morning to answer a book agent, or a tax collector, or a gas man, or a water man, or the land only knows what kind of man, there seems to be all sorts, is not to be thought of a minute. She will let herself be killed and say nothing, under the notion that she is helping you, and you mustn't permit it. It isn't as though you were a poor country minister. Now that you have got to Rome, there is a certain sense in which you must do as the Romans do. John had smiled somewhat constrainedly over the hint that he was now a wealthy minister. He was by no means blind to the fact that they were spending a great deal of money, though just how much he did not realize as his wife did. But he took the alarm at once as to Mattie's overtaxed strength and said, Of course, she must have more help that she had calls enough to make to take all her time and strength. So the second girl had been immediately sought after, and her weekly earnings were drawn from Mrs. Remington's already overtaxed purse. To the minister the revelation of affairs came suddenly, as such things generally do. He had been closeted for more than an hour with a brother minister, whose church was twelve miles away. Mattie had chaffed over the length of the call, knowing that her husband could ill afford the time. 
Sunday, with its two sermons and its Bible class and young people's meeting, was near at hand. He had accompanied his caller to the door at last, and then, instead of returning to the study, had sought his wife in her little sitting-room and dropped into the chair opposite her with a sigh. "'Poor Hammond,' he said. "'He is overburdened. He has bills to pay to the amount of a hundred dollars, and extremely little to meet them with. I suppose, dear, we couldn't help him a little just now?' There was a wistfulness about the words that fairly stabbed his wife's heart. What a shame it was that a minister of the gospel must be so cramped that he could not respond to a brother's call in his time of need. However, she controlled as much as possible the sense of dismay and answered quietly that she did not see how it was possible just then. We have given more than our tenth this month already, you know, for those special cases. I know, he said quickly. I did not mean for a benevolence, exactly. Alone, perhaps, though I don't see how, with his present salary, he is ever to pay it, but he thinks he can. Still, I made no promises. I only thought my thoughts. Matty, dear, I saw you start just now, as though you were almost frightened. Does the fear of a possible future, when we shall be bankrupt, oppress you occasionally? His wife looked up at him wonderingly. Then he was quite as ignorant as she had half feared. She would not have chosen this time to talk the matter over with him, but how was she to be sincere and evade it longer? "'I don't think a possible future worries me,' she said, trying to speak lightly, so much as an immediate present. "'Don't you know, John, dear, that it will be three weeks yet before our next quarter's salary will be due, and we have a bill at Delancey's and one at Wharton's which we cannot meet?' There was a look on Mr. Remington's face just then that his wife long remembered. A new look as one who had met at last face to face an enemy for which he had no courage. The world, the flesh, and the devil, in their most aggressive forms, John Remington felt himself ready to meet, unless, indeed, they came in the form of debt. From that he shrank with a feeling almost akin to terror. "'Is it possible?' he said at last, and then his wife knew that the whole matter must be gone over in minutest detail." There would be no sermonizing and no sleeping that night until the minister knew to the fraction of a penny what they had done and where they stood. But these and kindred perplexities, though they pressed close, were not, as I began to tell you, the chief anxieties. It was that nameless something, that want of sympathy and cooperation, that being met with silence where response was expected, that indifference, or worse, to subjects which should have thrilled them, which weighed heavily on the hearts of the minister and his wife. And these pressures were on the increase. They could feel them much oftener than they could put them into sufficiently tangible form to talk over together. Some of the things they did talk over, or wonder over. Why, for instance, had Mrs. Delancey withdrawn from the Ladies' Aid Society, in which she had been so interested and for which she had asked Mattie's special assistance, could it be because Mr. Remington had been obliged to ask in much embarrassment that the bill against them be allowed to stand until the next quarter's salary was due? But that would be absurd. Of course, they would settle it. And their faces glowed over this new experience. Then why did Mrs. St. Clair make a little party on Wednesday evening, their prayer meeting evening, and invite them, though she knew, of course, that they could not come? What a strange thing for a member of the church to do— and one who had at first been so cordial, who had even assured them that she always made her social gatherings an opportunity for her pastor and his wife to meet and become better acquainted with their people. 
How astonished would this pastor and wife have been could they have realized that the starting point in this phase of the disaffection was two dogs. It is too sadly true that neither Mrs. Delancey nor her particular friend, Mrs. St. Clair, could forget the conversation over Bernard and Floy and Aunt Hannah's share in it. They could not forgive Aunt Hannah. Do people ever succeed in forgiving those whom they have insulted, unless, indeed, the grace of God takes hold upon their hearts? Neither could they forgive Mr. Remington for being her nephew. Of course, she had told them all about their talk together, and tried to make them appear ridiculous. Judging of other characters by their own, no suspicion of the fact that Aunt Hannah had kept her own counsel about the dogs and their mistresses ever entered the minds of these two embarrassed ladies, so they nursed their petty chagrin and vented it in a dozen small, ill-natured ways, bewildering to the chief sufferers, and were excellent material for Mrs. Chilton to work upon, and Mrs. Chilton was the woman to discover it, and work them wisely and graciously in a manner soothing to their self-importance and helpful to the cause she had at heart. Oh, it is a long, intricate story, with a hundred interesting avenues and bewildering bypaths, I long to tell it out to you in detail, but must not. Does any one who has ever simply looked on at life with wide-open eyes need plainer speaking? Nor were these quiet days for Elsie Chilton. She did not understand her stepmother's plans. She did not know that they included her, but she felt, rather than realized, that an element of unrest had entered her home. She began to be vaguely conscious that for some reason the new pastor was not in as high favor as he had been that her father, even, resented his influence. It was a matter of great surprise to Elsie. She had been accustomed to having the pastor's views, or perhaps even what were called his whims, graciously deferred to. Now she learned that she must move carefully. Here, too, the influence of apparently trivial things, passing circumstances, words not carefully premeditated, came in to help or hinder according as one looks at these things. For instance, Elsie, sitting in her favorite spot, a low rocker just in front of and quite close to Mrs. Remington, detains her pastor one afternoon, just as with a smile for his wife and a bow for her he is passing through the room, with the question, Mr. Remington, I wish you had time to give me a long lecture, or, failing in that, I wish you would tell me in just a sentence whether you think it is always wrong for a Christian to dance, in quiet parlor dances, I mean, merely promenades. I wish you would tell me whether Miss Elsie Chilton thinks it is wrong. That would be much more to the point than what I think on such a subject. But she doesn't know, half laughing, yet with a vivid color on her cheeks. She has been upset in her moral status. Two people who think differently about almost every question under the sun from what she has supposed she thought have come into line with her mental vision, and she is half lost in a fog. She has an infallible guide one who has promised her wisdom on all points where she feels her need, and she will take no step in any direction until she knows it is the step which she ought to take. Were she in honest doubt, she will give her master the benefit of that doubt until it has been cleared away. That would mean that I certainly should not join in the dance this evening at Mrs. St. Clair's, whatever I may do hereafter. I wish you would make me promise so much, Mr. Remington. That would relieve me for today, at least." You have already promised so much, Mr. Remington said, gravely. I consider you pledged to do just that thing which I said. It is the pledge of every honest doubter. I have no objection whatever to your quoting me as believing that such is the necessary position of the sincere Christian, 
if you have any desire to do so. Then he had passed out, wondering much whether it would help the girl to argue with Alec Palmer to be able to say to him that her pastor approved of her settling these questions with her conscience before being called upon to take decided ground on either side. Two hours later, Elsie Chilton was at her father's dinner table, by no means aware of the fact that her mother, while that gentleman was making a hasty dinner toilet, had said to him, Robert, if you care to have Elsie accept any courtesies from young McMartin, perhaps it would be as well to mention it. The St. Clairs have company this evening, you know, and he will be there, of course. He is a cousin of Mrs. St. Clair. Why shouldn't she be courteous to him? She has been brought up to comply with the ordinary regulations of social life, I believe. I know, Robert, but you do not realize what a strain there is upon the child. It is hard for her to be natural just now. She has just come from the parsonage, and I have no doubt but that the evening's program has been gone over, and she has received her directions from a couple who have the narrowest and most unreasonable views in regard to social life of any persons I have ever met. They are trying to make your daughter over again, Mr. Chilton, and I am afraid they are succeeding to a degree that will be annoying to you in the future. Mr. Chilton's head was buried in the marble basin by this time, and the reply which he growled was unintelligible, but his wife was satisfied and not at all surprised, to hear him address Elsie abruptly at the dinner-table. "'By the way, Elsie, I want you to dance with young McMartin tonight, provided you are invited, of course. I have special reasons for trying to help him to enjoy life just now, and a little kindness from you, occasionally, will go a great way toward it.' "'Papa, I'll help him have as pleasant a time as I can, of course, but I'm not going to dance this evening.' "'Why not? Are you ill? If so, stay away altogether.' No, sir, I'm quite well, and have accepted the invitation, but I... He interrupted her. Then remember I desire you to dance, not only with McMartin, but with others who ask. I object to any such conspicuousness as having my daughter attend a dancing party and refusing to join in the amusement. I wonder that your good taste doesn't object to such a course. Papa, it's not entirely a dancing party. There are others who do not dance. Never mind if there are, you are not one of them. You have always danced, and been a leader, and to do otherwise now marks you for criticism. I don't often interfere with your whims, but you are to understand that I have interfered. You are to be among the dancers tonight. Mrs. Chilton was distressed. This was not at all as she would have managed matters. It was not in keeping with her husband's usual good judgment. As for Elsie, the glow on her cheeks was painful yet she controlled her voice and manner and spoke gently. Papa, I beg your pardon. I did not know that you cared in the least as to how I amused myself, and I have promised not to dance this evening. Whom have you promised, pray? There was an instant's hesitation. Mr. Chilton's voice was loud, most unnecessarily loud. The servant who had been dismissed from attendance by the wise forethought of Mrs. Chilton, and who was waiting in the next room the call of the bell, must certainly be able to hear. Elsie did not know how to reply. Her first thought had been to say firmly, steadily, the Lord Jesus Christ. It was he, of course, whom her pastor meant, but Elsie Chilton had not been brought up to speak thus freely of her guide. The whole subject of religion had been relegated to the privacy of one's own room. It would be judged indecorous, perhaps even sacrilegious, for her to make such a reply." There was certainly a secondary sense in which she had promised her pastor. He had said that he expected so much of her. 
Had Elsie been aware of that talk in her father's dressing-room, she would have understood him better than to make the reply she did. As it was, she said, still very gently, I promised Mr. Remington. Did you indeed? And you presume to put his commands before mine, do you? You may tell him for me that he is a contemptible meddling puppy, and if I ever hear of him interfering in my family again, I will kick him out of the house. Elsie had never heard her father use such language before. It is safe to say that his elegant wife was also exceedingly annoyed and feared from the look in Elsie's eyes that he was doing irreparable mischief to her plans. She even ventured a low-toned, Robert, remember the servants. But Mr. Chilton had gotten himself started and was not prepared to be stopped by servants. "'And do you understand, my young lady,' he said again, his voice in no wise lowered, that you are under orders to dance at the party this evening as frequently as you have been in the habit of doing. I will see whether I am not the head of my own family. Papa, I have made a more important promise than the one I mentioned. Do you not think that a promise carefully made should be kept? It makes no sort of difference to me whom you have promised. No, a promise which ought never to have been made is better broken than kept, always. I want you to distinctly understand, once and for all, that any promises which interfere with my orders for tonight are to be broken. And then Mrs. Chilton took matters into her own hands, wishing she had done so ten minutes before, and boldly rang the bell for the waiter. End of chapter 19